breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. As always, your faithful American Muslim correspondent, patriot, likes to look at what it is to be an Americanist, believe in Americanism, and how that idea can permeate who we are, our collective identity, our national identity to protect individual rights, and rise above threats to that existence, be it socialist, be it communist, be it fascist, be it Islamist. Always try to find the front lines of that battle and talk about it week to week. And thank you for joining me here. We have a lot to talk about again this week. Talk to you briefly about one of the aspects of treatment of COVID patients as we see the hospitalization rates going up across the country. Not ratios. Uh, infection rates are way up because people are beginning to interact. So the hospitalization ratios are not significantly different than we've seen before, but the numbers being hospitalized are much higher, so that is a pressure. Also, the calls for taking down statues have progressed more and care weighed in in a way that uh, I think is pretty typical, but speaks to how their Taliban-like mentality exists. A Saudi cleric is now getting the ire of the Islamists, and I think makes me start to think that maybe I should warm up to some of the reforms the Saudis are doing. Maybe not, but we'll talk about it. And Ayanna Hirsi Ali has an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that talks about what it is to be an American. I want to end on that note. So first, couldn't help but look at an op-ed by Steve Watterson of The Australian. And he's one of their editors, commercial editor, if you will, and wrote a piece called Dad and How Many Others Are Sentenced to Lonely Deaths. Very heartfelt piece in the Australian about how how lonely it was in his father's last days of his life, unable to be visited by anyone, and ultimately he passed. And rest his soul as so many like him have suffered the indignities of dying alone without that hand in your loved one's hand without that hug without that human contact necessary to feel closure and his dad didn't care his dad said you know even if I die shorter in a shorter period of time I want to see my family he said, my father was prepared to risk his life to see his loved ones. He said he'd leave the hospital. Others might have confronted that risk to save their human dignity. There's no measurable coronavirus curve anymore, so maybe we should try to flatten the poverty curve looming steeply ahead of us and eradicate the contagion of fear or the curves of other diseases that are now left alone, the tumors untreated, the cancers untreated, the heart disease untreated, the depression untreated. Every day, illogical, arbitrary, contradictory regulations pop up, comfort themselves, disappear and bubble up again like the wax in a 60s lava lamp. 
The only way to make sense of all this is to understand that our politicians and the experts who counsel them have literally no idea how to escape the madness they have plunged us into. The virus is out there now, all over the world, and it will likely arrive here in force for the rest one day. Are we to close our borders forever? Do we wait for a vaccine that may never arrive? Do we hide at home? He talks about lockdown. He talks about other things. But at the end, at the core of this sort of catharsis from this piece is something I've felt with a lot of patients. Listen, I've known firsthand in my own practice patients that have told me and have talked directly to families that have been unable to visit their loved one where it has impacted significantly their ability to care for their family and what to do. And every one of them to a T said they would have traded less days for closer, better departure, better better empathy, better humanity, rather than isolation that really ended up meaning nothing to them. Sounds cold in that it may have meant risk for others, but isn't that war? When you're at war and you see somebody risk their lives and go to save somebody in the battlefield, so many wise people tell him or her, that's not the right thing to do. Let them die. We must move on. The unit needs you. And yet often they go back. Not smart, but they go back. Because that's who we are. That's what makes us American. That's what makes us free. You can sit and argue that it's not smart. You can sit and weigh the curves and the data. But the bottom line is, is sometimes we don't want scientific data extrapolated that later often proves to be wrong anyway. We want to be human and make our own choices. And part of those choices is to be close to our loved ones during that time of possible, if not imminent, death. I want to read you some of the conversation. He said, The day after he was moved into the care home, triggering a further 14 days of total isolation, a kindly a kindly nurse breaking the rules, carried the word, the ward phone over to him and chatted to me. Then my daughter, before asking to speak to me again, please, son, he said, come and get me out of here. These were his last words to me. It's not a memory to treasure, but happily I have others. More than two months ago in these pages, when the panic was just beginning, I quoted my dad's view that most people at his stage of life would prefer to take their chances with the virus if it meant that they could see their families. At 87, he said, whatever happened to him as a result would not be a blanking national tragedy. He was right. His death is but a personal tragedy for the tiny group of people who were able to attend or live stream his funeral two days ago. But added to all the other deaths made unnecessarily miserable by this well-meaning brutality, factory in all the sadness to come, and national tragedy doesn't begin to do it justice. So, can science figure out a way to have family visit? I'd, why not? I'm not an expert on these things per se, other than being a primary care doc that's been trying to do the right thing on the front lines of this pandemic. But, come on, there's got to be a way. 
not to rip people apart and have them just do iPads once in a while. And remember, our healthcare system, as, as great as it is, is also broken in so many ways. How many of you have family friends that will tell you that have a surrogate at the bedside in a hospital to advocate for you because there's so many high-tech opportunities for not only success and health, but error and disaster. And without that person at the bedside, what's happening? Not to mention that so many governors and states have listed, lifted some of the liability protections, which is, again, arguably necessary in an environment where staff are cut short and uh, providers are furloughed and other things are happening to where the system is, is stressed with beds and other resources in order to care in a triage battle-like mentality. But remember, we're always living on the brink of that. Right now, they're talking about bed capacities being 85 to 90%, ICU capacities being 90 to 100%. Remember, these hospitals live at 70 to 80% capacity. Sounds high, but that's the margins of today's healthcare system, where tons, tons of overhead is lost in the expenses of the system. So it lives at the brink. And one small stressor can change everything. Just like one illness can bankrupt a family. Like one change can bankrupt a family that lives a budget from month to month or six months to six months. So all I can tell you is remember. I talk about reform. I talk about things that need to change. Why don't we prioritize? Why are we just prioritizing? I have to tell you, I can't help but think that this is the politicization right now. You hear day after hour after hour that this is the reason Trump might not win is because of the way he's handled the virus, the way he spoke out about it. He's not been empathic, as I heard Carl Rove say on Fox today. All might be true. But why does everything end up dwindling down into political conversation about partisan issues. Where's our priorities as a country? You have one side of the country exploiting the fears and the and the depression and the mood in order to push a political agenda that has not changed since we had an African-American president running our country with the Democratic establishment for eight years from 2008 to 2016. Same issues, same grievances. Whether it be police brutality, racism, etc. Yes, we're improving, and I'm going to talk about that with Ian Hersiali's article in a bit. But at the end of the day, they keep talking about this being sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, etc. George Floyd if his memory is going to be preserved, why does it mean that we take down American institutions in doing so? Why does it mean that we take down the entire police forces in doing so and our security and our monuments and all these things? Yes, we need to continue to correct racism. But why does it mean we continue to rip our country apart in the process? Why, when we fight COVID, do families have to get ripped apart? Yes, I get it. You don't want to spread virus to other families. I understand the medicine. Nobody's saying to allow families into nursing homes and other facilities, but 
find a way to allow some visitation. Limit it. Don't make it all or none. Everything has to be binary. I don't understand that. Just a plea from an empathic American and a doc. Changing subjects this week, we saw Governor Kristi Noem from South Dakota quoted frequently as saying, not on my watch. What is she talking about? Well, Mount Rushmore is in her state, and there was talk about removing their pictures, their sculptures from the side of the mountain in Mount Rushmore. And she said, not on my watch. She's quoted. And as she said, the men on Mount Rushmore helped make America the greatest country in history. They weren't perfect. Nobody is. But we should learn from their example and work together to accomplish their dreams for our country. And I'll tell you, I'll add to that. If Americanism means anything, if our founding fathers did anything for for our country, be it the Constitution, be it the Bill of Rights that became the centerpiece of ending slavery and racism and other uh, aspects of freedom, individual liberty and equality, all these parts that were written, written indelibly by the Constitution and protected by our Supreme Court and our separation of powers. Erasing history only ensures that you'll repeat it, only ensures that you can write new one and pretend it never happened before. Versus allowing history to exist allows you to continue to exemplify the best of it and prevent the worst of it. And yet, America's Taliban, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, quoted Megan McCain, Imran Siddiqui, the chapter organizer for CARE, Council on American-Islamist, Council for American-Islamist Radicalization, or they call themselves the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Megan McCain wrote, We're like one week removed from the entire cable news panels debating whether or not we should blow up Mount Rushmore. Obviously, she's saying that sarcastically, but necessarily with some truth there, as we saw statues and other things being defaced and destroyed. Imran Siddiqui says, sounds like a plan. And there's, remember what the Taliban did to the statues of Buddha as they got control of parts of Afghanistan where that was enshrined. They blew it up because in their interpretation and their understanding is that when Islam rules, it will destroy everything else. So they blew up statues. They considered it idolatry. Sadiq could probably tell you he's, uh, he's sarcastic or whatever, but he also tweeted a few weeks ago that uh, ultimately was was cheering on the 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 vandalism rioting looting that was happening again he'd probably deny that if you pushed him but his tweets were hard to understand otherwise shows you how the islamists that's how they operated in the arab awakening that's how they operate when it comes to chaos anarchy and social upheaval is that once they get enough of the population riled up and causing chaos, 
They don't do it through reasoning of their argumentation. They don't do it through Islamic values and morality and ethics, but they do it through demagoguery. They do it through not only their ideology of grievance mongering and victimology, but they do it through force. That's how they wanted to. They claimed they wanted to prevent Islamophobia, so they prevented speech and prevented people from speaking by force, removing them. As I went to Duke University, remember my event because of threats and other things was moved to the periphery. I didn't have a choice. University police said that they did it because they had security concerns. Why would you have security concerns unless the people that were making the concerns were were a, a, a legitimate, credible threat of violence? We see that over and over. That's how they operate. We can't bend down to that. And I'm confused. Why did it take an executive order this week by President Trump to protect the monuments? Yes, he extended this uh, prison sentence and said 10 years or something like that. But seriously, we don't have laws on the books that prevent. I mean, that what's the difference between toppling something or actually using an ordinance to explode it? So if all of a sudden a foreign entity started to blow up the statues at Lafayette Square, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, Mount Rushmore, etc., we started to see these blowing up across the country. There would be considered an act of war against the United States of America. And now, no, police are watching it. Governments and especially city councils, 99% run by Democrats. <laughs> it's funny, the Washington Post this week had a piece about how President Trump was wrong. Not all major cities are run by Democrats. And they showed a, a list of, of 35 or so cities with two, they noted. That's why he was wrong, because two of them are not run by Democrats, and one of them is, is labeled as an independent when is actually a Democrat. And the other is a smaller city, I think in Missouri or somewhere. So they actually owned themselves by showing a graphic that basically did show that the vast majority, almost every one of the majority of the top 20 large cities in America are run by Democrats, and yet those are the cities where racism is rampant. And again, if you're going to make it a partisan issue, where's the problem? You can sit down and label it as a partisan issue, but it's not. Yes, we have a lot of things we need to work on, and Ayan Hirsi Ali, I think, said it best this week in the Wall Street Journal. But these Islamists are simply exploiting it. If anyone believes that Ilhan Omar really cares about America and our founding history, her latest, if you look at her last tweets about America's founding values, she basically said that it was founded and discovered by a Christopher Columbus that was genocidal against the American Indians. Genocidal. We can talk about the plight of the American Indians and how they were treated and mistreated and how their land was taken. But to say that America's ideas were founded on genocide 
is a smear that no Americans deserve. In Ayan's piece this week, the Wall Street Journal on June 26th, she said outrage is the natural response to the brutal killings of George Floyd. Yet outrage and clear critical thinking seldom go hand in hand. An act of police brutality became the catalyst for a revolutionary mood. Protests spilled over into violence and looting. Stores were destroyed. The truism, Black Lives Matter, which she said the term she doesn't have any problems with, but the movement was joined by a senseless slogan, Defund the Police. Many hastened to appease the protesters. Mayors pledged to defund their police. Corporate executives scrambled to identify their brands with the protests. And then she goes on to talk about her own history. She said, as a, as a black African, an immigrant who came to the U.S. freely, I'm keenly aware of the hardships and miseries African Americans have endured for centuries. Slavery, reconstruction, segregation. She knows the history. She knows, as she says in the Wall Street Journal this week, there's little, there's still racial, I'm sorry, not little. She said there's still racial prejudice in America and that it manifests itself in the aggressive way some police officers handle African Americans. I know that by measures of wealth, health, and education, African Americans remain on average closer to the bottom of society than to the top. She knows that they've been disproportionately hurt by COVID-19 and economic disruption of lockdowns. But yet this is the key, and I've said this on this program so many times. Ayan says, yet when I hear it said that the U.S. is defined above all by racism, when I see books such as Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility top the bestseller list, when I read of educators and journalists being fired for daring to question the orthodoxies of Black Lives Matter, then I feel obliged to speak up. What the media doesn't tell you, as she said, is that America is the best place on the planet to be black, female, gay, trans, or whatever have you. We have our problems and we need to address those, but our society and our systems are far from racist. This is what the debate's about. I've talked to you about this in the past few weeks. It's about a general consensus about what America means, what it stands for, and the goodness of the people you run into. Are the odds that when you run into somebody at the grocery store, in the military, or in the police, are the odds that they are good, compassionate, people who treat every soul they meet the same with empathy and love? Or are they going to be evil criminals who will treat you with hate? And I can tell you, speaking as the descendant of a family that escaped tyranny in Syria and the Middle East, and just as Ayan speaks and so many have spoken This country is by far, by far, one of the world's leaders in compassion and empathy. And that has to do with its many aspects, but because of its Americanism, what it means to be an Americanist, a believer in individual liberty and the rights and freedoms, not to be told what to do, but to do it because you believe it and you want to do it. Also because of its religiosity. Because of the fact that the church, synagogue, mosque-going rate in America is so high, people fear God. That was de Tocqueville's message in democracy in America, is that because it's a religious society, because it's an empathic society, it does not need dictatorship to survive. 
dictatorship is needed for godless societies that when left are Darwinian and evil. Ayan talks about her roots from Somalia to the Netherlands. She said, there's a reason the U.S. remains that it has long been the destination of choice for would-be migrants. We know that there is almost no difference in the unemployment rate for foreign-born and native-born workers, unlike in the European Union. So even America, yes, there are, there's challenges for immigrants and otherwise, but the unemployment rate still stays the same. And they talk about, she talks about how there are despairs happening not only in the black community, but as other writers have talked about is happening in the white community and other communities that can be identified. The opioid pandemic affected the white community especially, but all communities also were affected. And then she gives a great summary of what happened, what got us here over the last 25, 30 years of politics. America's elites have blundered into this mess. There were eight years of hedonistic hubris under Bill Clinton, then came 9-11, and for eight years the U.S. suffered nemesis in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in the financial crash. After that, we had eight years of a liberal president, and the hubris returned. Sanctimonious politics coincided with deeply unequal economics. Read the full piece, and you'll understand, I think, how an immigrant, how somebody who believes that America is a city on a hill still sees America and that we won't let a recurrence, a revisiting of the civil rights movement of the 60s bring chaos and anarchy, but rather, yes, remind us of the racism that needs to be defeated, remind us that we have a lot of work to do, remind us that there needs to be better firewalls against brutality, against racism in our security forces, but not let us forget the prioritization of Americanism, of Americanists as a movement that should unite us, that we are all equal before the law, and that we have a tradition of love and empathy for all and that many still want to come to America. Last, I want to talk to you about a Saudi cleric that now has brought the ire of the Islamists, of the Muslim Brotherhood, and Hani Guraba, wonderful writer, wrote for the uh, investigative project on terrorism how Muhammad al-Isa who, by the way, I've been skeptical of, right? And I'm still skeptical. Was the is has been the imam, the sheikh, the cleric, the 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 intellectual Sharia expert of Saudi Arabia for the youth Muslim World Youth League, which was basically the farm team for the global Muslim Brotherhood for for a generation. But this guy's come around, and I think in the last three or four years, as the royal family has changed. It's approached the Islamists, realizing that their funding of their movements has created a, a pit bull that's coming back to destroy Muslims and Muslim societies, not to mention the world, with Al-Qaeda and ISIS and others. Now, I've called for more self-reflection on their own. But we have to give credit where credit's due. And this year, earlier, Muhammad al-Isa, 
visited Auschwitz, and he addressed the American Jewish Committee on their online global forum. He expressed a desire to improve Muslim-Jewish relations and fight Holocaust denial. And how many times have I asked American imams to do that? Some of them, yeah, they do it in passing. Uh, Others have done so behind the scenes but refuse to do it publicly. Isa said, we share the same determination to build a more tolerant and peaceful world, a world ruled not only by love, but a just and all-encompassing peace. Now he's being attacked by Islamists, led by those, as Hani talks about, on Qatar's state-owned network, Al Jazeera, which 90% of which is the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood. Ahmed Mansour mocked a video showing Elisa in Auschwitz last January receiving an award. He said, we congratulate Saudi Sheikh Mohammed Al-Isa, Secretary General of the Association of Bin Salman, for the warm hospitality of the Zionists in their honor and grant him the great medal of the Zionists, as he sarcastically said, which really was not happening, obviously. It was just a picture of them coming together with the Jews and others in a place of one of mankind's most horrific crimes against humanity done against the Jews in the 20th century. A week earlier, that same, another anchor rather, mocked Elisa's call for coexistence. He said, we are proud in the Muslim World League to carry the responsibility with Jews and Christians, brothers and sisters, to build understanding, Elisa said, refusing to accept that mockery and just ignoring it. And what did Al Jazeera say? This speaks to what Islamists do. Mansour, the anchor, said, the general secretary of the Muslim World League seems to be calling for a new religion. And Al Jazeera's Arabic website printed an article criticizing the Saudi cleric for speaking up to a Jewish organization. So I have to tell you, this is good news. Ultimately, the Islamists are going to show their cards, which is to them there is one Islam. There's no moderate. There's no reform needed. It is their Islam, and they call anything different a new religion. And I think the Saudis are beginning to fight back. Now, what I'd like to see from El-Isa is a revisiting of how they even reinterpret in Saudi Arabia the official interpretation of the Qur'an says those that who went astray includes the Jews. In their first page of the English translation, it's not in the Arabic, it's in their English translation. So no, I don't think that's part of the Al-Fatiha, but the Saudi Muhammad Khan translation, the official state translation, says it is. So yes, they're making the first steps. Yes, they're bringing the ire of the Islamists that expose what political Islam is and how it uses religion to collectivize people. But now I'd like to see them begin to deconstruct some of the theological underpinnings of their Qur'anic interpretation that drive the Islamists to have created that beast of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and anti-Westernism and anti-liberalism that is and that is defining of political Islam and Islamism. A lot more to come on that. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Folks, thank you for joining me. It is always great to be with you on 
reform this. Find me online on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. And also find us at TheBlazeTV.com backslash podcast. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.